I'm educational justice coach, Lindsay Lyons. And here on the Time for Teachership podcast, we learn how to inspire educational innovation for racial and gender justice, design curricula grounded in student voice, and build capacity for shared leadership. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach. I'm striving to live a life full of learning, running, baking, traveling, and parenting because we can be rockstar educators and be full human beings. If you're a principal, assistant superintendent, curriculum director, instructional coach, or teacher who enjoys nerding out about co-created curriculum with students, I made this show for you. Here we go. For this episode, I want to address how we talk about the violence in Gaza in our schools, in our communities. So I'll be sharing ideas for how you might approach conversations about the violence in Gaza within classrooms, within your school communities, even as adults. So we're taking both a student and adult lens here. Now, the context is that many adults have told me they do not feel equipped enough to facilitate or engage in this conversation. However, world events are happening and impacting adults and youth. And at a minimum, we should make space for students and adults to share their emotional responses and experiences related to this trauma. I'll get into more in the episode. For reference, this episode was recorded on October 31st, 2023, so the specifics of the context, the events happening, will be slightly outdated as of the airing, which will be in January 2024. So how do we talk about the violence in Gaza in our schools? I think what's a really important thing to note, and the context for, I think, having this conversation specifically within the realm of the so-called DEI world is a comment on LinkedIn, which I reposted from Michelle Mijun Kim. And she wrote an extended post, but I will just share a clip of it briefly. Quote, even if you don't understand the full history, you can draw on your knowledge of power dynamics, characteristics of white supremacy and colonialism, and the use of dehumanizing narratives to justify ethnic cleansing. Even when emotions are running high, you have the skills to create big enough containers to hold and validate people's grief and fear while guiding people to challenge the conditions that create violence. You know how to connect the dots to explain how all of us are implicated in this humanitarian and moral crisis. Again, the quote is far longer. I've linked to it in the blog post, which you can access at lindsaybethlyons.com slash blog slash 144. I'll be sharing that link again, because throughout this episode, there are many references that I have linked within the blog post. It's one of the most heavily linked for a lot of reasons. There are a lot of resources I want to direct you to. There are also a lot of facts that I want to make sure I'm citing. So all of the the links to those are, are in here. So let's start with the grounding of what's happening. Because I think one of the major things that many adults have told me is like, I don't feel comfortable navigating this conversation even with another adult because I don't feel fully informed. And of course, that means that I don't feel comfortable navigating this conversation with children and educating and facilitating the conversation with children where I'm responsible for the factual understanding of those kids, right? And so I think part of this work is skill-based and, and building the capacity for having the discussions about anything, right? And I talk about that a lot on the podcast. The other piece is for each specific instance, you know, we as educators, as adults, as people, we don't have to have all the answers to everything. We don't have to be experts in every single content area. As current events come up, by definition, they're current, right? They're, they're ever-changing. We don't always have all of the information at hand. And so I think part of that is being able to say, I don't have all the answers as an adult, as your teacher, right? So when we're in a context of students, but even as we're adult to adult conversing, right? In a staff conversation or something, we can say, I, you know, based on what I know, here's the thought. So I just want to level set again, this is based on a recording of, uh, this is the recording date here is October 31st, 2023. 
due to reduction processes and all the things, this will not actually air until the beginning of January of 2024. So I, I get that there is, you know, a two month lag here in terms of up-to-date data. So I'm just going to share what feels relevant in this moment and what is hopefully still relevant to you at, in the future. First, the historical context, there's so, so much of it, and I've linked to more of it here, but I, I am not an expert on all of the facts. So I will just share what I feel like is relevant to contextualize for our conversation today. So between 1947 and 1948, during which Israel identified itself as a nation and was created as a nation, um, this period of time to the Palestinian people is known as the Nakba, the catastrophe in Arabic. An estimated 15,000 Palestinians were killed, including dozens of massacres, and an estimated 750,000 Palestinians were forced out of their homes in the capturing of historic Palestine to create the state of Israel. There is a link to a much longer and more in-depth guide if you would like more context. Now, in the last 16 years, specifically, Israel's occupation of Palestine has created the largest open-air prison in the world, with Palestinians being banned from travel, including to the West Bank, despite it being widely acknowledged they're a part of a single territorial unit by international nations and organizations. Now, again, clearly this is not the only context. For more details, please dive into these links. Um, I, I do not purport to be a, a scholar of um, Palestine or Israel. Most recently, as of the airing of this episode, or as of the sorry recording of this episode, on October 7th, 2023, the Palestinian armed group Hamas killed 1,400 people in Israel, many of whom were civilians. Since then, more than 8,000 people have died in Gaza, many of whom were women and children as a result of Israeli attacks. Specifically, I want to name these are attacks by the Israel military, the Israel government. So additionally, Israel has blockaded Gaza, cutting off critical supplies. In the last several days, as of this recording, Israel has cut off cell phone and internet access for residents of Gaza. Access to healthcare and clean water are concerns for many, many people, but including, as they often take a feminist lens in these things, an estimated 50,000 women and girls who are currently pregnant and living in Gaza. Israel recently, in, in the last week or so, has denied visas to UN officials following a comment that Hamas attacks didn't happen in a vacuum. And that's, that's quotes around didn't happen in a vacuum. So recognizing the context there. So these are all of the facts that are circulating in my head. These are the things that I am thinking about. And of course, this is steeped with emotion, additional context. I don't, I don't have the space or the knowledge to get into. But what I do know is that students and adults are going to need to process this in some way. So for some of them, they can process this with their families. For some of them, they're processing individually, internally, um, with friend groups, with peers. Some are trying to you know, look to the internet and, and finding people that they follow on social media and what they say, and they're repeating that. Creating you know, perhaps a container that may not be the most fruitful for generative discussion about emotional events. And so with that understanding, here's what I would suggest, and it is parallel to many other times I've recorded episodes like this and recorded episodes that are both generic and specific. I know a few years ago I was recording, how do we talk uh, with white students about the attacks on the Capitol, right? That, that happened in early January as well. So this is kind of reminiscent of, of a lot of the structure that I would use in talking about a lot of current events. So the first step is to just establish discussion agreements that center the dignity and humanity of all people. So this is critical. If you don't have this, you can't engage in this discussion, right? And which is why I think social media is a really 
challenging place to have discussions like this. We don't have that shared connection. We don't have that co-created community. We don't have clear agreements that we all have consented to um, enact or, or abide by, right? This is the unique difference that we have in communities of care, communities of educational environments, of friend groups, of, of families, places where we can center the dignity and humanity of all people. And we can specifically agree to that through consensus. And we can specifically co-create how that looks for us. What does it look like in practice? What do we do to call each other to account when that is not happening? We have a unique space in classrooms and school communities to do this work. And so I think if it's not happening in their friend groups and family groups, or it's happening, but it's not happening in a way that centers the dignity and humanity of all people, here's even more reason that we do it here. We do it in our spaces, in schools, in educational communities, whose whole point is to learn and to think critically and to have um, discourse with folks, right? And then hopefully, ideally, students and adults take that and bring it into their own spaces of discourse with families and friends and loved ones. Now, I would want to specifically clarify an agreement or create an agreement for this particular conversation about Palestine because we want to say very clearly that anti-Semitism and Islamophobia will not be tolerated, right? We are never tolerating racism. That violates the inherent centering of dignity and humanity of all people. It just goes against the core principle that we're developing agreements around, right? So obviously that's not tolerated. And at the same time, we can critique actions of a nation, group, or leader because that in and of itself is not anti-Semitic or Islamophobic. So we should be able to critically analyze a government's decisions, for example, and it is not the same as expressing racism toward a group of people for who they are, right, for their identity and the identity group they belong to, right? So these are not the same. Step two, Invite folks to share their emotions. And if it's helpful, personal stories and experiences. Again, I think really important that it's personal here, that it is speaking from the eye, that it is not, here's my opinion on this, or here's, um, you know, this like fourth hand account that I saw on social media and I'm completely divorced um, from in terms of like my own personal connections. Like, I just don't think that's the time or place for this. I think there might be a time or place for that at some point. But initially we want to start again to see the humanity in each of us to see the humanity of the folks in the room in the conversation, what emotions are they experiencing? And again, it can it can stop at just the emotion at this point, right? You don't have to share stories. That's up to you and your facilitation, but it's also up to the community in terms of what they're willing to hear, able to hear. The next step, I think, after we've done this, after we've acknowledged you know, the agreements, the emotions in the space, potentially personal um, stories or, or experiences um, that resonate with them in that moment, Step three is to invite inquiry. So notice we haven't even like gotten to like a complete factual, like, you know, like here is exactly what's going on in all of the things yet. I do think there is a degree of factual grounding just to enter the conversation, but that could literally be like a headline or um, a, a still image of like a, a website, a news website or something, right? Like just to say like, here's what's going on in the world in like snapshots and like headshots, like maybe a visual, like that is not traumatizing, but like, I think we don't need to get to all the granularity of the facts just yet. Because again, all of these first initial layers and steps are to make sure that beyond anything else, we are practicing again and again, that centering of humanity and human dignity across the board, across our group. So 
in step three, inviting inquiry, what we want to do is ask questions like, what do we want to know about? What more might we want to learn about as a class or you as an individual, right? Again, thinking about doing this as a staff PD too, for adults to grapple with this, to then maybe go talk to students about it, maybe not, but I think adults need practice with this as well. What specific questions do we have? So we're listing all of those out. And then we as a class collective or maybe a group, each each student group or each adult group chooses a question and kind of like goes on, you know, an academic research journey, right? We pursue inquiry, just like we would pursue inquiry in anything in a historical way, right? And about a historical event, we want step four then to be that we're kind of level setting on the research facts. We're sharing out. We're also analyzing sources. We have a critical lens. We're specifically thinking about the context, right? Nothing, nothing does exist without context. So every kind of thing we're, we're kind of putting together, right? Some of the questions may overlap and help us contextualize like, oh, this group found that. Well, I found this in, in my group. So, you know, let's contextualize it all. Let's look at the specific power dynamics, right? If we're censoring justice, we are looking at power dynamics. We are putting on a critical lens. And I think that's step five, right? We're going to elevate and, and further practice criticality which is a phrase Dr. Goldie Muhammad uses in her book, Cultivating Genius, and her Hill model of curriculum development and pedagogy, right? And I think there are supports that go with this. And I've talked about these before, but I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about what I would do in this scenario. I, I like to use questions that are adapted from Dr. Muhammad's Hill model. So she has one on criticality that is mostly for people who are creating curriculum. So as you develop this lesson, how do you center criticality, that kind of thing? specific questions that I would pose to a group of students or adults for conversation around a current event would be adaptations from that. So for example, what do you think about the power and equity at play here, right? Who holds the power? Where lies inequity? Those kinds of questions. Also, we don't want to just analyze inequity. We don't want to just sit in the injustice, right? I think I've, I've heard this from like anecdotally from people in my classes. I've heard it from colleagues who know the work that I do, I've, you know, seen it um, in, in, in terms of research studies. It is also critically important that we do the second part of Dr. Muhammad's criticality question as well, where we're talking about disrupting oppression. So also naming, you know, how are individuals or groups disrupting oppression right now? And how might you as an individual, how might we as a collective group disrupt oppression right now? So we're not all just steeped in the injustice. Yes, we are, but we also can name agency in what folks are doing, acknowledge that work, and then what we can do. So we don't have to, um, we, we can, right, create the space for the emotion, and then we can also create a path forward. If you were a social studies teacher, so these next couple of recommendations for step four, where we're really like practicing that criticality, like you might bring in some different resources, depending on what your class is familiar with, what you've used before. I always like to leverage things that you've used before and be able to use that as a lens. So for example, if you're a social studies teacher, you may want to pull in a resource you've used, like the Genocide Education Project. I know it has a lot of grants. So you might use their stages of genocide resource packet that's helping students think through the relevance of the term genocide in relation to Israel's attack on Gaza. So you might actually go through the stages and be like, do we see these, right? How do we see these? Um, if you're practicing in uh, like an ELA class or a social studies class or some other class, using a gendered or feminist lens, for example, you may investigate the interplay of militaristic violence and intimate partner violence. There's a uh, powerful example from Dr. Simona Sharoni, who was one of my uh, feminist teachers in college. 
she wrote an academic paper that kind of illuminates these perils really well. And I'll link that again in the blog post. Um, one more time, that blog post for listeners is lindsaybethalliance.com slash blog slash 144. Now, as I'm kind of wrapping up, we've, we've said a lot. There's been a lot. This is an emotionally heavy episode. I do want to name the final kind of takeaways, I think, for this particular conversation about the violence in Gaza, but also any current event, anytime we're talking about an event or a series of events that are unfolding in the world that are impacting us, that are carrying with them high emotions and long historical contexts that we as individual educators may or may not fully um, be aware of. All of those things are, are important to name and consider and, and build around, right? But I, I, I want to say these final things to, to kind of leave us. We cannot have conversations about challenging high emotion topics without the grounding in our collective acknowledgement of each person's humanity. We don't need to push particularly traumatized individuals to talk about this in classroom spaces when this could be further traumatizing. This also includes things like using visuals or videos um, or even sounds, right, that are emotionally traumatizing. We have folks at different, in different emotional spaces, and I think that's another value of inviting folks to share their emotions. Of course, every, every share opportunity is an opportunity, and so it's not mandatory, but I think inviting that emotion share out helps us as facilitators of these conversations to know where exactly everyone is um, and how how like emotionally raw um, some folks are. And, and, and I think that makes helps us make decisions accordingly. Um, we also don't want to avoid conversations about hard things because we don't feel equipped. We can build our capacity to talk about hard things. We can seek to learn information we don't yet have. We can enter conversations humbly and ready to acknowledge our mistakes while centering justice and human dignity. And if we can do those things, that is my freedom dream for all classrooms, for all educational spaces, for all staff meetings and team meetings amongst adults. This is my hope for all families. This is my hope for all friend groups, right? This is it. This is the generative dialogue that is at the heart of making sense of our world is at the heart of expressing our humanity and seeing the humanity in others. This is the heart of restorative justice, peace building. This is at the heart of why I went into education, right? Because I wanted to build a better world. And I think youth are the, the place and educators who are lifelong learners and committed to the journey of being better always and creating, co-creating better futures with our youth this is where that dream is most possible and most likely to flourish. If you have these conversations, please reach out to me and let me know how they go. If you have additional recommendations or things that you've tried that have worked well in terms of having this conversation, please reach out. If you like this episode, I bet you'll be just as jazzed as I am about my coaching program for increasing student-led discussions in your school. Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan talk about a pedagogy of student voice in their book, Street Data. They say students should be talking for 75% of class time. Do students in your school talk for 75% of each class period? I would love for you to walk into any classroom in your community and see this in action. If you're smiling at yourself as you listen right now, grab 20 minutes on my calendar to brainstorm how I can help you make this big dream a reality. I'll help you build a comprehensive plan from full day trainings and discussion protocols like Circle and Socratic Seminar to follow up classroom visits where I can plan, witness, and debrief discussion-based lessons with your teachers. Sign up for a nerdy, no strings attached brainstorm call at lindsaybethlions.com slash contact. Until next time, leaders, think big, act brave, and be your best self. 
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.